If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There is always going to be periods of distance and times when it's more difficult to connect with people and or things happen to us and it's more complicated to try and understand each other through them. There's just always going to be these periods of difficulty in love. And I understand now that actually how we try to reach each other in those moments or how we find a way back to each other, the love is in that effort. It's not something that we've lost. Welcome to the new season of the Not Perfect Podcast. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, the author and founder of the award-winning app and best-selling book, Happy Not Perfect. This is our time to take a break and go within to unlock ourselves in a new way and stretch our thinking. Whatever you are going through right now, I welcome you into this conversation with a new inspiring thought leader each week to help us thrive, rise and realize our full truth and unlimited potential. As you might know, if you read my book, I'm passionate about us becoming flexible in our thinking. And that starts with some mind, body, and soul healing. So let's dive in. In today's podcast, we are going to be exploring a subject that is the most important thing in this world. And yet, I don't think I've ever had a whole podcast episode dedicated to it, which showed me so clearly why Natasha Lund's work is some of the most important work being done. And it is all centered around teaching us about love. I opened her book and on the first page in black and white, Natasha makes this very point that none of us are taught about love and expect to be experts at it. I felt seen. I don't think I realized how complicated my relationship with love had become over the years of bruising. And I'm sure many of you might relate. After years of feeling that love was always out of reach, journalist Natasha Lan set out to understand how relationships work and evolve over a lifetime. She turned to authors and experts to learn about their experiences, as well as drawing on her own, asking, how do we find love? How do we sustain it? And how do we survive when we lose it? It is an honor to have Natasha, the author of the Sunday Times best-selling book, Conversations on Love, on today's podcast. What is a favorite quote you return to often and why? One I've rediscovered recently was um while watching the film before sunrise that I love for years and years and one of the characters says I believe if there's any kind of god it wouldn't be in any of us not you or me but just this little space in between if there's any kind of magic in this world it must be in the attempt of understanding someone sharing something I know it's almost impossible to succeed but who cares really the answer must be in the attempt And why I love that is because it sums up so much of what I've learned about love and I'm trying to remind myself about love all the time in that it's not something that we can study for and then complete. It's not something that we ever cross the finishing line of. And actually continuing to try to understand each other 
despite how vast and impossible the mystery of love is, that is where the meaning is. As she says, the answer is in the attempt, the love is in the trying. And I'm trying to remind myself of that all the time. God, I love that. Such a beautiful quote. Thank you for sharing. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Linked to that really, um, and actually it comes from another quote, a Rilke quote, which is live the questions for now. And the thing that has caused me most stress or unhappiness in my life is wrestling with uncertainty and trying to fast forward through periods of not knowing to finding an answer and knowing for sure if something was going to happen for me or if it wasn't. Of course, when we do that, we miss so much of life trying to fast forward these vast stretches because there's always going to be questions that we're asking and actually embracing the uncertainty in those periods and understanding that life is what happens in the questions, not in the answers, is something that I'm still working on and very useful. Oh my God, did I need to hear that life lesson? Oh God, I've been a, such a whirlwind of like, where's the answers? Where's the answers? Gosh, I'm really going to take a beat and like receive that. I love that. Just sitting with the unknown, I guess. And actually another quote that sort of ties to that is from Elizabeth Strout. And she says, I think our job, maybe even our duty is to bear the burden of the mystery with as much grace as we can. And I feel grace is a good word for those periods when you're sort of thrashing against it and wanting to know. So yeah, now when I'm lost in that uncertainty, I just try and say to myself, I need to just handle this with as much grace as I can. Wow. What a nugget to start this podcast with. That is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. How do you define happiness? These such big questions, but... uh, Uh, My working definition is paying attention to and appreciating the meaning in the small details that make a life beautiful. So simple, yet so powerful. So let's dive into this brilliant book. Every single page, you are presented with not only yourself, but also like as a reader, I saw myself reflected in every page, but also understanding your story. And then also being introduced to these incredible conversations that you had with these amazing people. It's truly a real work of art. And I just feel like everybody, everybody should read it and feel so passionate about your book. Just to kind of start with, how did your understanding of love change? Because as you write, you began with quite a narrow understanding of love. And through the exploration, it changed. If you could talk me through some of that journey, that would be amazing. So it's probably two big things overall. And the first was it just expanded my idea of love into this big boundless thing. And certainly because before I wrote the book, I I started by investigating love through a newsletter, which is still going. So I'd interview people about love for about four years. Um, And when I began that, I was very much looking at how much I've been obsessed with romantic love and how that had been on a pedestal for so long for me. And really, when we say the word love, that would be my first thought, as I think it might be for a lot of us. Um, And so I, I went in knowing that I wanted to look at friendship and I wanted to look at families. But then these conversations just expanded my idea of love even beyond those. I started to find the love that exists between strangers and the kindness that we can show each other in those vulnerable moments, the love that can exist 
in purpose and creating something that other people connect to in nature, in faith, in all these different places. And of course, in your relationship and understanding of yourself. So that was the first thing that what I, how I define love changed. It completely changed my definition of the word. Not just that we can find it in all these different places, but that actually it's not really a thing you find or a feeling that happens to you or a gift that you're given. It's actually something that we contribute to and choose. And it's much more fluid and a thing that we build all the time. Whereas I thought it would be like something that you found and then it's there forever and you've reached this perfect state of love. So that was the first thing. And then more generally, I approached the project and the book hoping that I could sort of game love, I guess, and learn everything so I could avoid any rejection and I could be a great wife and a great mother and a great daughter and a great friend. And now I'm just much more relaxed about the fact that there is always going to be periods of, you know, distance and times when it's more difficult to connect with people and or things happen to us and it's more complicated to try and understand each other through them. There's just always going to be these periods of difficulty in love. And I understand now that actually how we try to reach each other in those moments or how we find a way back to each other, the love is in that effort. It's not something that we've lost. So yeah, I reached the end of the book understanding that I wouldn't want to avoid all the bad patches in love or all the mistakes. And actually in some of those mistakes or painful periods, it built up a richness of layer in my in my relationships. The book does such a fantastic job of deconditioning, I think, these kind of historic views of love that Disney probably are a little bit responsible for. And you begin the book looking at the difference between fantasy and real romance. So if we start there, what did you find out about like so many of us fall into the trap of fantasizing about kind of this ideal version of love and how wrong that is? Well, now I don't think that is a complete trap. And I don't think that we can ever avoid that entirely. And actually, I do think there is some part of that romantic fantasy when you're a teenager and you're sort of rich in time and you've got these long stretches of summer where you're maybe falling in love. Like that's such a beautiful time. And I don't want to go back and tell myself, you must wait for a real love at 13 and you can never fantasize. Because I think there's something, you know, that's a form of imagination and it can be wonderful. But I didn't quite know when to retire the fantasy and start living in the real world and perhaps stayed in that teenage adolescent state for two decades too long, possibly. And the problem with that for me is just that I didn't recognize real love when it appeared in my life, not only that I overlooked the love I had with my parents or the love I had with friends in those moments when I didn't have a romantic relationship and I thought that meant I didn't have love in my life, but also when I met my husband, you know, because it was very easy and we both were communicating very easily and there were no games, I didn't have that sort of anxious feeling and it wasn't like my romantic fantasies, this tumultuous up and down, will they, won't they, affair I did for the first few dates say to friends oh I'm not sure if it's going anywhere it didn't quite get off the ground it was just very I, I didn't recognize that as, as the beginnings of love and luckily we had a bit of space and time and I realized 
not too late that it was the start of something but it does scare me that my fantasy of love was so powerful that I didn't recognize real love when it was happening this is what I thought was just for me like I really needed to read this part of the book because without kind of having these open conversations that love isn't this huge gut reaction I'm going to come on to talk about that and what Frank Tallis and that conversation oh that was a game changer yeah yeah it's like you know you kind of get well if we don't have these like fireworks or electricity then clearly that's not my soulmate because obviously with my soulmate we would see each other across the room and like immediately set on fire and my mother used to always say to me Bobby I never thought your dad was that special (laughs) when I met him and yeah and she's the only person I've ever had that kind of honest conversation with as to kind of long-term partnerships may not have started from this deeply passionate oh my god I know you're the one and when with that kind of narrative you just know certainly people have said that to me you just know and then actually reading your account of meeting your husband I found so refreshing and calming and reassuring for many reasons so to go into kind of like your conversation with Frank Tallis he kind of questions the gut feeling narrative and breaks down romantic mysticism why did you begin to dismantle the idea of love at first sight Well, I, I, like you, I have had many times when I would meet a man and I would say, I remember very specifically going to a bar and my friend was on an online date and I was joining her and I met his friend and I went outside and I said, I'm going to marry that man. And it was this intoxicating feeling that I was just committed. I mean, obviously he never asked me out and we never went on a date and I never (laughs) saw him again. But Philippa Perry said to me, there's something called erotic mutual transference that sometimes it might be that the way somebody brushes their hair reminds you of the way a nanny you had when you were younger would brush your hair and it's not even a conscious thing and you were drawn to them for that reason so I don't know if that was happening with some of the men who I've met and felt instantly in love with as Frank Tallis said like sometimes this feeling of like chemistry or oh it's meant to be is because we don't have any real evidence of a relationship or connection and actually the absence of evidence is what makes you feel that mystical feeling because you have nothing else to hang it on so actually that gut feeling you know we're often told to trust our gut isn't always that helpful in love or certainly wasn't for me and the reason I wanted to ask about that is because I felt very confused as to why I felt so convinced or so drawn to people who I didn't really have any sort of real relationship with. And one of the relationships I write about, I had this, you know, what I felt was love for him for decades, but we never actually spent any time together or had any really interesting conversations or had any um, periods of real intimacy. So I I wanted to understand where that feeling came from and why it can be so convincing. On the subject of breaking down fantasy, there's obviously us fantasizing about somebody else, but also us performing a version. You write, you often find yourself performing a version of a woman you thought more palatable. And actually, when you're not honest in a relationship, it's like a jam jar. And I love you use this metaphor. It's like a jam jar with the wrong lid. We try to kind of squish our true personality and we can find ourselves then feeling lonely and we can find ourselves pretending we're okay with things we're actually not okay with. Can you talk about why honesty and love can't really be separated? 
Well, yeah, the jam jar thing is like when you're screwing the lid on and you sort of feel the ridges aren't aligned and that even though it looks like to somebody else, you might be turning it, you kind of know that however much you keep turning it, it's not going to seal. And that was just how I felt. And I did always know something wasn't right or that I felt like I couldn't be myself or I felt like I wasn't being understood. But I was just so afraid of being alone in those instances that that was where the lack of honesty came from, that I had this idea for some reason that if I was honest, if I was vulnerable and myself, that the relationship would end. And it's strange how I was more afraid of the relationship ending than being on my own than of being miserable in a relationship where I could never feel comfortable enough to be myself. Um, but as I kind of look into like that fear of being alone culturally was just more powerful. Um, but I, I think the reason that you have to be honest in love is that, you know, loving another person requires great vulnerability and if you're not being honest, it's very difficult to be vulnerable. Mm. And, you know, love is really like feeling seen and understood. And how can you be understood or seen if you're not being honest about who you are or what you want or what you're afraid of? It's actually a very lonely place to be when you're being dishonest. It's so true. And what you also kind of talk about in the book, this changing yourself, being more palatable, I definitely have had experiences on like those first few dates. You're like turning up with your best outfit on. You're turning up as your best self, of course. But are we selling a version of ourself that isn't entirely a true expression of us? Or, and actually, it may prevent rejection for a little bit of time. But actually, is it serving the, the greater good of love in the long term? Well, and the truth will come out anyway at some point won't it and I did get to the point where I didn't want to waste any more time from sort of keeping the bits that I was ashamed of in it was sort of like get to the point where okay here is all my shit if you're going to stick around great if you're not that was sort of the, where I was trying to get to but of course there is a, a bit of withholding at the beginning and that's only natural and that's part of the fun of getting to know someone more slowly but I suppose the idea that you have to make a decision on somebody from three hour drink is what brings on that panic, isn't it? Because you're thinking, yeah. how am I going to show this side of myself? And how am I going to show I'm not like this and all those things? So if I was dating now, I guess I would try and say to myself, I, I wouldn't really make any decisions about somebody for at least a few dates, because mm. I would hate to think that somebody made a decision about who I was based on three hours on an afternoon really refreshing and this brings us on to talk about the conversation you had with a huge like I absolutely adore him Elaine de Botton and you really reframed the narrative around singledom and how did that kind of conversation with him evolve your idea of actually changing the way that we see being single so this is in the how do we find love section as I was saying to you before I had this real fear of being alone and convinced that I always would be I that somewhere in my mind, I just had this fear that I would be alone forever, which sounds dramatic, but it, it felt very real at the time. So I spoke to him because I wanted to try and understand why was I so afraid of being alone? And where does that come from? Is it cultural? Is it individual? And he really helped me to see that we just need 
more stories. We just need to listen to lots of different people who've lived lots of different lives to understand that when we miss a milestone, that for me, trying to meet someone by my 30th birthday, which now seems completely ridiculous, that that's still so young, but at the time felt like this huge weight of expectation. And, you know, he, he gave a great anecdote, which was, I asked, I always used to feel so lonely on the weekends, especially on a bank holiday, if my friends were going away and I would think, how am I going to feel three days? You know, everyone's left London. I'm feeling so miserable and it would just make me feel so unhappy about being alone. And he said, you know, if you're happy on your own on a Monday night, but you're miserable on a Saturday night, the problem is not actually being in your own company. It's the story you're telling yourself about being alone. Mm -hmm because you might be doing the same things you know why does it feel on a Monday you're just having a night in on your own on a Saturday it's like you are miserable and your life is a failure (laughs) Um, I wanted to write about that in a way that also showed that it is really hard to be single when you don't want to be a lot of the issue for me was that I am at the time the narrative was a lot about self-care go on solo holidays be independent be happy on your own and the truth is that I did want to meet a romantic partner. And at the time, that narrative made me feel a bit like, oh, I'm another failure because I can't be happy on my own. And I like what he and Philippa Perry said as well. It's like, we are animals that are designed to have lots of connection. And if you don't want to spend loads and loads of time on your own, that's fine. And you can find connection in lots of different places. The important thing was just not seeing it as a romantic relationship or nothing. It was just understanding that actually there are lots and lots of different ways to feel connected and you need to use all of those, whether you're single or whether you're in a relationship. Before we go back to our discussion with the wonderful Natasha, I wanted to tell you about something I've been using that's totally changed the way I sleep and feel when I wake up. I've been waking up feeling so peaceful and with such a sense of calm. Now, I know we've all heard a lot about CBD recently, but I think to truly enjoy all the amazing therapeutic benefits it can provide, you have to use a high quality, rigorously tested product. Platinum from Columbia Care is one of the best CBDs I've tried, and I keep a bottle by my bedside every night so I can drift off into a more restful, relaxed and deep sleep. I'm delighted to say they are our partners for this season and have given you all an amazing 20% off for a limited time. So do visit col-care.uk and use code NOTPERFECT20, I'll put those in the show notes, to get 20% off this amazing CBD. CBD has been shown to help with a number of conditions like anxiety, pain, focus, inflammation and sleep. Platinum from Columbia Care is the best in class and I'd thoroughly recommend trying it to see if it helps you. If you've tried CBD before but weren't clear on how to use it, didn't like the taste maybe, or it didn't work, then have no fear. Platinum tastes great, especially the peppermint flavour, provides clear instructions on best use and really does work perfectly for me. Just visit coal-care.uk and use code NOTPERFECT20 for a brilliant 20% off. Now, moving on to the stage of then kind of being in a relationship, 
there's conversations you had in the book around kind of love and control, love and surrender. I thought that was, again, really interesting because I, there was this one line where you were like, oh, I kind of thought that getting married was the finish line. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, no, no, it's the start line. What are your kind of thoughts around control and love and how they can harmoniously be together? Yes, it, the control is such an interesting one because I found so many contradictions in it that in finding love, I had to understand that I was in some ways more in control than I thought in that I didn't have to be so passive and just sit around and wait for love to find me. Like I had to understand that I could put effort into that just as I would into my career. And actually why with everything else in my life did I try and put effort into it? But I was sort of embarrassed to try at love because I felt like it said something about me that I had to try and make it happen. So in that way, I was more in control than I previously thought but as Alan said like you also have to accept the element of luck in it as well Mm. in finding love and that you can do all these things and you can sign up to dating apps and be open-hearted and hope and then it might still not happen exactly when you'd hoped it would so in that way you have to have the balance of control and then inside a relationship yes I the mistake that I perhaps made was thinking so much about being loved and how that person would love me and how I would feel to be loved by them without really understanding how much of being in a relationship is giving love and bringing out someone else's strengths and making space for their vulnerability and finding forgiveness for them and patience for them and finding humor together when you both drive each other crazy. And I just now understand how much self-understanding and self-possession being in a relationship requires. I suppose I thought about that in the context of being on your own and understanding yourself and doing the work on yourself and blah, blah, blah. I hadn't understood how much that continues when you're in a relationship. And it's actually such a complex thing to try and combine your life with another person and understand the way that they will react to stuff in context of your reaction. And you're both changing all the time. It's like, I almost think it's like trying to do a a Rubik's cube, but the colors keep changing. It's, Mm. It's just constantly new challenges, but in a really beautiful way too. And I suppose I'd always feared change in a relationship because I think, oh, well, what happens if they change? And then I'm scared of that or we don't change together and and all these sort of fears. But now I understand that that's what allows you to fall in love again and again. And we were sort of talking about the thrill of that kind of intense, I'm obsessed with you feeling in in a kind of, anxious crush but what I have found in a long-term relationship is because you both change and because there is still newness and mystery even after well for me six years actually rather than being something to be scared of that's what means you can fall in love with somebody in a new way and it means that you can still have mystery and things can still be erotic and thrilling even after a long time together. I love what you write about that falling kind of deeper and deeper. And it's like, I love being like an onion and you're finding new, new layers to the love. And Philippa Perry in a conversation you guys were having is talking about how relationships allow people to take on different roles. So she spoke about the dreamer and the planner or the teacher and the child. What are your thoughts on the different roles people take in the relationship? Yes. Hers was the dreamer 
and the accountant, but that she has to, her partner's a lot of the dreamer and she can get pushed into the accountant role. And so she has to sort of fight to change the roles. In my relationship, I guess a similar example is that my husband is a really, really good cook and I'm maybe not that domestic. And so I could, I could let him cook every night and just fall into never doing that. And so we could just fall into those fixed roles. But I still make an effort to cook, even though I'm bad at it, because I know if I let him do it completely, he would not enjoy it as much. It would become a chore for him. And then I would never improve. So in that way, I think it's important to keep taking turns at your roles and also just to keep things open. And I know that I can kind of feel quite hemmed in if I've just got a certain role in the relationship and then it's assumed that it will be that way forever. Mm. Actually, the honesty is just for me anyway, constantly evaluating your roles, constantly kind of bringing things to the table and saying, are you still happy doing that? Am I, is this working for us? Do we need to rethink who's working more, who's working less? And it all comes back to the boring thing, but that's just continuing to have honest conversations rather than making assumptions about somebody. So powerful. That word assumptions. Oh, so, so good. And it works with friends too, doesn't it? That like a lot of the stuff in that, um, the section that you were talking about with friendships comes in that when we've had friends for a long time, we sort of can somehow can sometimes have a snapshot of them and it's the year we met or the year that we Mm. spent a lot of time together. And actually probably neither of you are the people that you were when you met or when you were spending time together. And actually to kind of sustain the friendship, you have to keep asking who each other is and also keep telling each other who you are. And on the subject of friendships, you really stress the importance of being self-sufficient, even when in a relationship. What did this book teach you or remind you when it comes to friendships? I guess the lessons in friendship were not that dissimilar to romantic relationship, were not that dissimilar to siblings and parents. Well, I, I suppose for me, friendships were very easy in my 20s. I, we spent a lot of time together life's overlapped in a very natural way and I didn't really have to put that much effort in because it just happened and they were always there now I'm in my late 30s 36 friendship requires a lot more effort and a lot more forced consistency because Mm -hmm. when you're not seeing each other naturally every weekend you sort of have to find another way to force the consistency into the relationship so the biggest challenge I now understand in friendship is knowing when to sort of accept the distance between you and when to fight to repair it. So when to kind of let somebody disappear for a while and when to think, actually, it's been too long. I need to somehow force consistency back in. You use the word kind of acceptance in the book, I think, and uh, just accepting his ebbs and flows. And again, such a lovely thing to read because you know it can I think can be especially for me very anxiety provoking when you're like oh my god are they cross they're not and actually just accepting that no they're not cross at all they're not pissed off they're literally their world is just so full for whatever reasons whether it work family and and having that kind of you know mutual respect for how kind of different and full life can be and that's no reflection of the relationship you might have with someone you know, for me, the, the bit I was writing about was finding it very difficult when friends were getting pregnant as I was trying for a baby after a miscarriage and just feeling like I couldn't really be around them. Mm. And obviously, there was some part of it's useful to be honest about what you're capable of at a particular point. But also, I sort of had put them on not pedestals, but sort of assumed they were really happy because they had what I wanted. 
without thinking, oh, actually, that person was having some difficulty in their relationship and maybe needed a friend. And actually, mm-hmm. that other person was a new mother and was actually really lonely and struggling and perhaps needed a friend. So I think I maybe um, failed to see the complexity of friends' problems just because I was sort of, I guess, envious of them having the thing that I was really wanting, which I, I think can be easy to do. Oh, I think it sums up Instagram in in the sense that we see a snapshot of someone's life without the full context. And if it triggers us for whatever reason, it's so human and so normal. And yet it's a tiny snapshot. We've got no idea of what someone is truly going through. And you speak so vulnerably about your journey uh, through fertility. What did you learn about sustaining love during emotionally painful time? Well, that was also another reason that I wrote the book, because as I was trying to conceive, particularly in like the months after miscarrying, I really started to see parallels between how I felt then and how I felt when I was single and dating and feeling sad about not having a relationship and a lot of the challenges were the same like we talked about at the beginning which is like living with uncertainty you know in both times I felt when I was single oh if I knew I was going to meet a partner in 10 years I would be more than happy with that I just want to know what happens someday in the same way if it was like I knew I wasn't going to have a baby then I would maybe have looked into adopting and Obviously, that would have been devastating, but I just wanted to know. I just couldn't cope with this Mm. not knowing, not being able to plan my next 10 years of my life. And actually, in both situations, and I didn't do this when I was in my 20s, but I did learn to do it because I was writing the book and interviewing people is really what helped me. I was just able to see or try to see the forms of love that I was overlooking. Like I use the example of being in Paper Chase and on Mother's Day and crying because I wasn't a mother and then because I had just interviewed somebody who had lost their mother I was I managed to think I also have a mother and that doesn't replace the fact that I really want to be a mother and Mm. that's a painful experience but I do have a mum who's alive and lots of people don't and she's so wonderful and I want to be able to appreciate that relationship was not while it's here and so for me what I had realized um, during that period of trying to conceive was that it was painful to think that I might not have the baby that I was longing for, but it also didn't mean that my life was completely absent of love. And the interviews that I was doing at the time just helped remind me that there is many different forms of love in many different places. And that it's really important that we feel compassion for ourselves or accept how sad we are about not finding a certain version of love when we'd hoped to. But at the same time, I had to learn to see the love that was right in front of me in other places. It just speaks to the human condition of our negative bias in kind of becoming so tunnel vision and not appreciating that this happens at work. It happens like, you know, with just even the strengths of recognizing in ourselves. Like when we think that we don't have something we want, it is so easy to forget all the wonderful things we have in life. And that is why your book is such a celebration of all types of love. And even as, as you mentioned, you touched upon at the beginning, the love between strangers. 
And I really loved this, again, kind of massively zooming out the lens and going, okay, like, let's look at that. Can you tell me a bit about the love between strangers, um, the revelations you had around that? Well, you've interviewed Kristen Neff, haven't you? On yes, your Did you speak about self-compassion and the sort of togetherness stuff? Because I think it's linked to that. And actually, the last answer was saying, when you can get into that place of thinking, the sort of being consumed by self-pity and not being able to see that not having one form of love doesn't mean your life is going to be miserable forevermore. It's you feel quite cut off from anybody else at that point, don't you? And you mm-hmm. feel like this has only happened to me. Like, I, I do remember thinking when I was unhappily single, I'm the only one who's single in my friendship or, you know, what's wrong with me because it's happening to me. And it's a very egotistical way of thinking. And the stranger love taps into that. It's part of understanding that actually all of our experiences have been felt before and that actually we share so much, you know, so many of our heartbreaks somebody else has felt. And it's very, I mean, obviously there are some situations that are very extreme. You might be the only, you have some rare disease that nobody else has. When we're talking about very ordinary things like feeling lonely, really, as a lot of what it comes back to, connecting with people who you don't even know, who show you kindness in those moments, makes you feel less alone. It makes you feel seen and that's what it is to be in love right it's being seen by somebody being understood by somebody and I was amazed to find that I could feel understood and seen by a stranger just through a smile or a way they asked a kind question and yeah the more I look for those pieces of connection the more I find them all the time such a a nice reminder for us all to look up when we're walking around rather than looking down or inside I would love to talk about expectations and love because I found one of your interviews, she was sharing um, her perspective on managing expectations around love and just remembering that love is not a solution as well for all our problems. And we can naively think love will take away the low rattle of unhappiness. That's what she says. And because she found herself in this relationship and, you know, she felt the relationship was going to eliminate this low rattle of unhappiness. And actually it didn't, but it wasn't a sign that relationship was wrong, but actually just, that was just being human. You have days when things aren't great. What Mm. did you kind of take from that? I think the first part, the expectations was something that Esther Perel said in that we because we used to live in a more um community based way like we would be in a village and we would live with different generations and we wouldn't all um move so far away from our families is that now we're kind of living in more sort of individual you know we move away and we live far away from family and we kind of live on our own or whatever she said we're sort of loading all the expectation that a village used to provide onto one person. So whereas before we would have connected with lots of different family members and friends in our village in lots of different ways, now it's much more likely that we're putting all our expectation of happiness onto a partner. Mm. And, and that's a lot of expectation to load onto one person. And actually no one person can know every facet of you and give you everything that you need to be happy And I know that for me, my husband is wonderful, but he doesn't have any real interest in the writing world or, you know, he'll listen to me on the surface talk about conversations. Love, He's not going to like go deep into talking about certain (laughs) philosopher or whatever. 
but I have a friend who is really interested in those subjects and she sees that side of me and we have a relationship that revolves around those things so I don't need to expect that or want that from him the expectation that one person will meet all your needs I think is just a lot of pressure to put onto any relationship totally agree and again just so reassuring I've definitely made that mistake in the past and kind of assuming someone isn't right just because they're not fulfilling every single need I could possibly have and um I really feel that your book is such a guidebook to really developing healthy love I guess and it's the same in friendships as well like I definitely have understood now that um you know I have old friends from school who know a certain version of me and we have a relationship might revolve around like humor and silliness and memories and I don't necessarily need them to know every part of my life now because we can kind of flip back to those old versions of each other and that relationship suits that shape and then I might have a friend who I've met now in my late 30s who knows me only as the person I am now and that's great in lots of other wonderful ways and so I don't need every friend to know every single part of me and for me to connect with them on politics and writing and all these different things sometimes it's okay to have a friend who you're just silly with and talk about old stories and can be young again in a way yeah and the, the other thing I really got from your book is just constantly expanding our understanding of love because I think it's quite easy and I think I, I think I rem- remember someone talking kind of about that yeah keeping that openness about love because it's so easy to when we haven't slept to kind of go back to these really narrow versions of love that perhaps are not love more control-based or fear-based love yeah I think she's she said like Sarah Herpola the writer that our default state sadly is pretty lazy pretty <laughs> cranky pretty <laughs> impatient and so that some people have meditation some people have gratitude journal lots of different some people go for a run we all have different ways of tipping ourselves out of that place and into like a more grateful place and that's what the conversations have been for me they just when I'm just snapping at my husband and trying to you know just something this morning is like trying to compete like I've slept more than you have you slept you can just fall into that and then I'll read a line which is like that's the death of love you know if you try and compete or if you try and win you both lose and then I'll just remember that little thing and I'll think who am I who am I trying to fight against here there's he's not the opposing team like we're on the same team so where can we find this book and where can we find you uh so conversations on love it's out now in hardback and audiobook wherever you get your books and you can find me on instagram at natasha chloe lan or you can follow conversations on love which is conversations underscore on underscore love there you can sign up to the newsletter which is kind of my continued exploration of love and I've got amazing therapists and authors coming up for the rest of the year so do sign up if you're interested. I look forward to receiving all the newsletters um, such a dose of mindfulness in your inbox and thank you so much for coming on the Not Perfect podcast. Thanks so much Poppy. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. 
Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.